0: welcome back to the line to gain podcast my name is jeremy dixon here as always with mike parker mike what's up man how's it going it's going well it's going well i know uh this week we're doing a little bit of another audible episode yep uh last time our audible episode was the afl of the 1960s and this one is going to be the usfl uh of the 1980s it's 83 to, to 85 they actually played games
1: yeah um didn't like the defense we saw so we called an audible and we're going <laughs> to pivot to the USFL today um, yeah
0: gotta do it I think there's there's some definite uh in, there's it's super interesting the the league in, in, as a whole and how you know their rise and fall I guess um yeah it's and it's you know we got a we got some very significant players from the USFL that came into the NFL that we all know are household names and then You know, got a few rules that that came through there that, um, you know, are are staples of the NFL today.
1: Exactly. So the USFL seemed to be more um, less. It was less the games were less important is what we saw with the AFL games were were important. They became part of NFL history with USFL. It's a little bit different. But the other things that they brought to the table um, really built uh, what we see in the NFL and, and in a lot of cases, professional sports in the
0: United States. Yeah, no, no doubt. No doubt. Well, let's uh, let's kick off our categories. I know we're not doing a fantasy football draft for this because it was only the three seasons and there was a lot of player movement and team movement and things like that. So we just decided not to.
1: Yeah, we'll outline it as we get down in there. We tried to stick to the format as best we could, but we did pivot a little bit for some things. Right. Um, So to start, as always. Um, we were we did work with Stack Guy this week. There was only a couple of things we got wrong, or some clarification that we needed from the last episode. Yeah, I'm so
0: happy that we uh, we're we're getting a little better. Stack Guy is getting getting bored
1: with us, or our editor is just kind of removing it before it gets <laughs> to him. Who knows?
0: Could be, could be.
1: So one of the questions we had was the Pro Bowl. Like, when did it start? What, you know, where is it being held? Was it the week before or after the Super Bowl? Um, we had a bunch of questions. So stat Guy helped us pull up the, the detail. Yeah. So a little background on it. Um, they first started an, quote-unquote, all-star game, the NFL did, back in 1938. It lasted till 1942. Um, it was an experiment. They had the champions of the league. Basically, that full team would play against a group of all stars. So they did that for those uh, what is that four or five seasons. Um, it became officially called the Pro Bowl um, after the 1950. It was three weeks after the 1950 championship game in
0: 1951. Okay, um, I like that. That they you know they were uh, experimenting with the champion championship team playing against uh, against the all stars. That would be an, that would be a, a fun way to. To watch a game, but I mean, yeah, there's no chance that that the uh, the team that wins the Super Bowl is going back out there a couple weeks later to get. Uh, it's unlikely. Go, yeah. go at it with the uh, with a all star it, team. It's a
1: good it's a good test though. Like, is 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 football about the team or is football about the stars? Is right. the team and the cohesion and how they play together what ultimately wins a football game, or is it the stars and their ability to kind of win one-on-one matchups every time so it would be interesting to see it this these days um i don't think we will obviously because you know players what is it the players association and all that kind of other stuff having issues with that but right um yeah certainly interesting
0: absolutely So I guess, yeah, the Pro Bowl after the merger, uh, the format of it was 1970 to 2003 was just the AFC versus NFC format that we're all very familiar with. Uh, Then in 2014, uh, they decided to do a mixed roster drafted by captains. Yeah. And they did that for a couple years until 2016 was the last year of that. And then 2017 to present, they've gone back to this uh, AFC versus NFC format. Yeah, exactly.
1: And, and then they've moved the location around a few times. So in that early year, 1938 to 1942, um, it went to Wrigley Field in Chicago, Gilmore Stadium a couple of times in L.A., the Polo Grounds in New York, and then Scheibe Field in uh, Philadelphia. Um, pre-merger, um, it was at the uh, Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum. That was 1950 to
0: 1968, Okay and then uh the post merger location for it from uh 1970 through 78 they played in Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum, uh Texas Stadium in Irving, Texas, Arrowhead Stadium in Kansas City, the Orange Bowl in Miami. The Superdome in New Orleans, the Kingdome in Seattle, and Tampa Stadium in Tampa, Florida.
1: Yeah, so the Kingdome, um, they had it like it was after the 1976 season. Which, which was in our 1977. inaugural season. Right, so yeah. it looked like, based on that, I, I kind of figured it looks like they were moving the Pro Bowl around to these different uh, cities that
0: that got new stadiums. Right, and Tampa yeah. being the next year. Exactly. Because they were, they were an expansion also, team yeah, the 1976, same year Seattle. Yep.
1: Right. Yeah, so in 1979 to 2015, it was mostly at the Aloha Stadium um, in Hawaii. Um, it's kind of what we knew, what I knew as a football fan. Everything right. was all in Hawaii. Um, with the exception of 2009, it was in Sun Life Stadium in Miami. And 2014, University of Phoenix in Glendale. Now, it looks like they were at those because that was the Super Bowl locations for those particular years. Right, I, so I they had remember it, that. So they had it the week before. Um, But since then, since 2016 to the present, um, they've had it at Camping World Stadium uh, in um, Orlando. It's that multi-use like sports facility that has all of these it's like right it's espn yeah it's like part of by disney and all this other stuff and yeah
0: and it's shown on espn so i think they do some of that like quarterback challenge stuff while they're down there and and, and all of those sorts of things
1: there's all just tons of synergy going on right right. around
0: that time and so yeah the you know the 19th uh the timing of the pro bowl um between the 1970 season and 2009 was held the weekend after the Super Bowl, which, I mean, I remember well growing up. And then from 2010 until now, it's held the weekend prior to the Super Bowl. And, you know, I, I used to – the few times that the Seahawks have made it to the Super Bowl and then you're like all bummed out like because, you know – because we've made it once when it was the week after the Super Bowl and once when it was the week before. So, obviously, the week before – the players in the Super Bowl are not playing in it, but before even the when it's a week after the Super Bowl, most of those guys still not playing it. They might show up and you know get their you know take smile, take some pictures and get the the accolades, but they're not actually gonna play in the game anyway. So
1: yeah, well, I like the I like the Pro Bowl when I was watching it in the 90s. I think as I got older, it didn't matter because and TV got better, so you got to see more players. But back in the right. 90s, it's like you would see the Seahawks and and they. They sucked. I mean, it was just there wasn't a lot of good things to watch on it. So the Pro Bowl gave you an opportunity to watch other players, um, and how good they were. So I I really did enjoy the whole pop and circumstance.
0: Yeah, no, it was. uh, It was. Yeah, it was. It was always fun, especially like you mentioned, without having the access. Or as much like internet, you know, we didn't have the internet in the, the early 90s anyway. And so, yeah, you're just like, the, that's the only time you get to see a lot of these players other than on Sports Center. So,
1: that's why that show, like NFL Primetime, is so important, you know, at least for my fandom. Was yeah. like, it was really the only opportunity for me to see some of these players and these teams. And, yeah, man, it was a lot of fun watching those. I still do to this day, actually. I know,
0: Boomer. And uh, I wish, man, I wish Keith Jackson would come back. Isn't it Keith Jackson? Tom Jackson, Tom Jackson. My bad. It's one of those Jacksons stat guy too is many
1: rolling them. around on the floor right now. <laughs> All right. So uh, we actually were unsure. So another uh, stat guy thing, we were unsure what what year Michael Strahan set the single season sack record. Um, it is official. It was 2001. We figured that out. Uh, he had 22 and a half sacks. He beat uh, Mark Gastineau by a half a sack that year. Um, and there was this kind of controversial situation in the final game of that season. Um, the giants were playing the Packers and Brett Favre's Brett Favre comes out and then basically takes a dive on the grass and, you know, Strahan kind right stray hand on top of him and there's the, the full and final sack for the record. So a lot of people thought it was kind of like, here you go. Here's your record.
0: I vividly remember that too. It was, that was just crazy. I,
1: I'm yeah. Like, what is he doing?
0: I, I mean, obviously, I mean, I my, think everybody still hated lie. Mark Gastineau, though, so like nobody really cared that much because everybody likes Michael Strahan and yeah. nobody liked Mark Gastineau, so it's like, eh, America likes Mike Strahan.
1: What What are you gonna do? Yeah, so there, there you go, 2001, 22 and a half sacks.
0: Yeah, all right, and so uh, another thing that we wanted to get sorted out was the instant replay. So... Uh, I know we were a little confused uh, in the last episode about that. So it was adopted in 1986. That iteration lasted until the end of the 91 season uh, using the 1979 AFC championship, which was Houston versus Pittsburgh as the case study. And and you brought this
1: up at the last episode or the 1970s episode why you know why pittsburgh had right cause those yeah weekends. that houston yeah. you
0: you can go watch the film that uh houston wide receiver it was a touchdown it was a t- there's no there's there's no world that that's not a touchdown so uh so the nfl having this new technology called instant replay they can now confirm close calls there were no coaches challenges like there are now and the review is up to the discretion of the officials uh, no time limits led to longer games and slowed tempo which is always a problem this they, was the main reason about.
1: that they're like no we can't do this it's it was dragging out and it was slowing the tempo of the game and like people are just sitting in the stands right. getting drunker
0: yeah getting drunk <laughs> uh and then so from 92 to 98 there was no no replay system used at all and then uh because of Vinny Testaverde's phantom touchdown for the Jets, uh, at the expense we had another of the one in, in
1: the Super Bowl.
0: Yeah, <laughs> Roethlisberger and
1: Roethlisberger' his phantom touchdown. No
0: kidding. Uh, and then so yeah, '99 through the present, um, they've implemented new rules, uh, time limits for the reviews are 90 seconds, so we can't have you know a 10 minute review, right. making the game last forever. Coaches have two challenges per game as well. If they challenge two and are correct twice, they're awarded a third. But if they get one wrong, then it's no more, and it costs you a timeout. So, Right. Um, and, and then now, you know, this season they've gone to this new thing, Mike, where they do, like, from the booth up above. It's If it's clearly a wrong call, they'll just switch it and say, nope, that was an incomplete pass or that, you know, whatever the – Whatever the case may be, and just call it down to the the head official, and the head official will make the call, and and they don't even waste the time of going through the full review, yeah. I which mean, is cool. I mean, with that, all that the cameras, do. absolutely.
1: With all the cameras, they can see everything. Um, the how clear it is nowadays. I mean, it, these guys review every time. I'm glad they're trying to get it right. I'm glad that they're able to figure it out. Um, before the flag, the red flag comes out, I, I think it's a better product. We're getting it right. That's all I
0: want. Yeah, me too. Get it right. That's what everybody wants. So, yeah, let's get into a not so brief history of the USFL. Mike, why don't you kick it off here?
1: All right. So, from its inception, American football was considered a second tier sport behind the national pastime, baseball. Um, as a result, Elite levels of American football teams rarely had the financial wherewithal and the, and to finance their own facilities. So what they had to do essentially is work with other teams, other sports, to to use their stadiums. And in this case, at this time frame, when you know the NFL was starting to become something in the '40s and '50s, they used a lot of baseball stadiums. So. The baseball teams would say, no, you guys run around the field. Those cleats tear up our grass. It, it's bad for us. You guys can't. You can use the stadiums, but you can't play uh, during our season. So basically, that is the reason that football, the NFL in particular, moved to the fall is because it was the offseason for baseball and it was the only time they could get those stadiums.
0: I had no idea of that before uh before we were you know kind of going through our pre pregame uh notes and stuff like that's crazy
1: yeah just it's that simple that's, that's so that's nuts. why it started
0: because i'm always like damn it man i get cold like i'm too I'm i'm a warm weather guy i'm not trying to be outside and in a uh, snowing i don't want to go watch a football game in the snow like i love the kingdom that was the greatest yeah, thing ever it was nice so I wish I wish we had uh, football in the summer. That would be a spring and summer. That would be amazing. Yeah, it would be it'd be nice. Um, so
1: starting in the 1950s, roughly football's making that push. The NFL becoming popular. It's competing with baseball as a popular sport in America. Along with that, they're, they're getting a number of technological investments like AstroTurf, things like that, and developments and in growing in, in the maintenance of natural turf. This basically opened the door for um, people to start thinking about the timing of football. Hey, we can, we can repair the grass in these stadiums better. We can use turf that's more durable you know, for these sports. Why are we, if, we, if we have this technology at our fingertips, why are we keep playing it in, in the fall and the winter? So this was the environment where David Frank Dixon started to envision the possibility of a spring and su- of spring and summer football.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so uh you know our next our next little subcategory is let's get organized. Uh so the United States Football League was conceived by New Orleans businessman uh Uncle David Dixon. I didn't <laughs> I didn't tell you Mike I was I was almost a billionaire but the check wasn't very much. Uncle David. So anyway. Yeah, didn't get paid uh, out. Yeah, just joking. Not I'm not related. Uh, he uh, So he's been a key figure in the construction of the Louisiana Superdome and the expansion of the NFL into New Orleans with the Saints.
1: Right, yeah, 1967. So he, he helped build a stadium and then helped convince the NFL to
0: expand into New Orleans. Yeah. Uh, so his idea would be to create a spring-slash-summer professional football league, not to compete with the NFL, but to bring football to the fans – when the NFL and college football were in their off season, which at this point it's like getting so big, like football is huge. I mean,
1: right. Especially in Louisiana with LSU still big back then. We don't want to compete with these big brands that we know. Right. But let's, let's let football, people enjoy football year round. Yeah.
0: yeah. And good and good weather football. Like you're not dealing with like the snow and the, the crazy weather. And I mean, I guess springtime might be, might be a little crazy, but Just Um, heat exhaustion and, you know. You know, you got those cool, you got the, the, I guess back then they probably didn't have those big uh, blowers on the sideline to cool the players down. But, so from the moment he conceived the idea to bring football to spring and summer, which was around 1965, he had started studying the NFL and especially the successes and failures of the two most recent professional football leagues, the AFL, which we've talked about, which lasted 10 seasons and then merged with the NFL in 1970. And the World League, which only played one season in 1974, folding after that inaugural season.
1: Now, I remember the World League as this European Football League, right? I didn't even know this one existed, but it was a flash in the pan season. It was in all of these small, what we would call small market, Birmingham, Tampa, um, Arizona, these small cities um, outside of, you know, what the NFL footprint was, so... Interesting.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I I remember the World League uh, that was over. You know, in like uh, there was a team in Germany and like all over in Europe. The and, Galaxy,
1: uh, the Dragons. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I used to
0: have my dad went and visited some family in Germany and brought back like an NFL. I think he went to a game of like the the Galaxy, I believe, and and brought back a a team like a scarf. I guess because they all they it's just like soccer there. I guess they wore so, uh, scarfs like uh you know they have the scarfs for the MLS teams and whatnot, but um, yeah. And so in 1980, uh, Dixon can in 1980 Dixon commissions a study to investigate the likelihood of success for a spring and summer football league. the revo- The results were very promising, and as such, begins to develop his Dixon Plan.
1: Very important.
0: Yeah, it is. So, um, and in 1982. Uh, Mike, I had heard that an NFL player strike, which we've we covered in the last episode of the podcast, is really the thing that kind of opened the door for these guys to think, hey, we can do this. They just thought with, you know, the want for these people that were missing the NFL to to see some football, they were like, hey, what the heck, let's give it a go. and And off they went. Yeah, it seemed
1: like a like a perfect storm of events. On one hand, you have a guy that is really passionate about uh, bringing uh, spring and summer football, he's a businessman that has already delivered on that um, for the NFL in Louisiana, um, and at, at the, he has a he has a plan uh, laid out, which we'll talk about in a moment. And on top of that, the NFL is going through some player strikes, so people coming out into the draft in those years have other options. So. Um, It's a really a perfect storm of things that kind of led to the creation.
0: You know, the thing that strikes me about about Dixon and and, uh, David Dixon and what he was doing is that so he helped bring the Saints to New Orleans. So he could have probably gotten involved in the NFL and and tried to be in that, you know, owning a team or whatever. He he probably had an option or, or an in for that, but wanted to try to get a spring and summer league because he yes so that, that's what made me think like he really believed in that this could work in, in the spring and summer without it wasn't just a ploy like maybe some of the other leagues had been to try to merge with the NFL or right. whatever the case may be so um, yeah it seemed like he really really wanted to wanted to just give us more football which is awesome
1: yeah I, I support the plan and speaking of plans he did have one it's called the Dixon plan Um, This is essentially like an onboarding or user guide to potential uh, franchises. Um, He said, you know, follow this to maximize your success for your team and ultimately the league. Um, He kind of laid it out. He was looking at all the other problems that happened in these other um, leagues, as you had mentioned, and some of the successes and said, hey, we can we can learn from that, we can create a plan, you follow this plan, we're going to have success. So the original franchisees had to agree to the following. There was other stuff, but these are the the key ones that we found. So um, they had to agree to use specific league and team operations strategies. He laid it out for them. He laid out also how to develop your television rights and contract information. Um, He outlined how to successfully promote uh, the product within your home markets. I mean, he's handing you like a playbook for how to be a successful owner. And most importantly, he uh, imposed some strict financial requirements for prospective owners. This is important because one of the biggest problems is capitalization for some of these new leagues, right? So they had to submit detailed due diligence and background checks to verify that they had the money that they said they did. And then they had to meet pretty strict capitalization requirements. He had them prove that they had a, at least a, a million and a half in um, a credit line that they could use in case of emergencies
0: which is i mean that's vital because you heard about in the afl i mean um the owner of the bills had to loan the oakland Ralph raiders Wilson, yeah yeah i had to loan them a, a good chunk of money Four hundred thousand. 400,000 yeah, yeah just to, and, and back then i mean that's crazy money so um that's a smart way to do things So
1: let's assemble the team. We have we have the Dixon plan in place. We have a great idea. We're going into
0: spring and summer. So uh, let's assemble the team. Absolutely. Uh, So Dixon hired well-respected college uh, from Cal and Stanford, NFL Broncos and Eagles and CFL from the Toronto Argonauts coach John Ralston to be the league's first employee. So, you know. Mike, that's kind of a good idea. Just to, to hire a well-respected coach, somebody who's been, you know, at basically every level of both college and professional football, and uh, you know, put him in place to be one of the coaches of his league.
1: It's very important to
0: have that um, that key piece in there that can,
1: uh, you know, provide some structure to your league. You know the kind of pl- quality product you're going to get. You know. Uh, you know that players respect him and you know what he's been able to kind of show in, in his time with, in the NFL and other pro sports. So it's a known entity.
0: Yeah. And then so from there, Dixon acquired signed letters of intent from 12 ownership groups in 12 cities, uh, in 12 of the top 13 media markets at the time and in eight cities that already had NFL teams. Yeah, they
1: went right at the at the top markets um, because they were, you know, in a different season. They didn't, quote unquote, directly compete with uh, the NFL at the time. But um, this becomes pretty relevant
0: as we kind of roll through over the next three years with the league. Right. Absolutely. Uh, So former TV executive uh, Chet Simmons became the league's first commissioner in June of 1982. Simmons had previously worked at ABC, NBC Sports, and ESPN. Everywhere. Yeah, <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah, he was key in developing sports programming, including ABC's Wide World of Sports. Uh, he pioneered Instant Replay and revolutionized Olympic and Final Four coverage for NBC Sports and brought us so much great programming to ESPN, including SportsCenter, which I don't know what I would have done as a, like 12-year-old if I didn't have SportsCenter.
1: I don't think there's a single more important sports show in the history of, you know, my universe anyways of the United States. It's it's still relevant today um, and it's it's fun to watch. And, you know, it's if you're a sports fan, (laughs) you should be watching it all the time.
0: No doubt about it. Uh, so with this dream team in place, uh, and with the TV broadcasting contracts signed by ABC and ESPN to televise the games, the USFL was set to begin for the 83 season, but wait,
1: nothing goes off without a hitch, right? There was some little preseason jitters, um, some things that they had to take care of, um, before the, uh, 83 season kick get underway. um, Basically, Alex Spanos, who is the current that the family is the current owner of the Los Angeles Chargers. Um, He was the owner of the L.A. franchise. Um, He saw an opportunity to become a minority owner of the uh, San Diego Chargers and basically withdrew from the USFL. So now we have a market L.A. franchise that has no owner. So Jim Joseph, who was the minority owner of Oakland, says, oh, that's an opportunity. So he he goes in to make a bid to the Los Angeles area and buys the rights. So the San Diego franchise for the USFL had a couple of guys in there that were um, cable uh, TV moguls, Bill Daniels and Alan Harmon. They were having trouble securing the rights to Jack Murphy Stadium. And the San Diego Padres are like, you're not playing in this stadium. So they were kind of working back and forth between that. So ultimately, what they did was they moved Jim Joseph to Arizona because they didn't they felt like um, Bill Daniels and Alan Harmon being cable TV uh, moguls would have a better they would do a better job marketing uh, the USFL and their team in in L.A., the second largest market in the United States. So they're basically, it's better for the team. If these guys take LA, Jim, Joseph, you're going to go to Arizona. We're going to give you a team there. We're going to, we're just going to say no to San Diego. And then obviously they have a majority owner in Oakland that will, uh, anchor that franchise. So they move some chess pieces around the board. And then once that was settled, here we go. 1983 USFL.
0: All right, and let's uh, we'll, we'll get into the, our, our dynasty of the USFL rules. Uh, so for, for this, you must make the playoffs in a given year to earn points. To be the dynasty of the USFL, you must win at least one championship. Teams will earn points based on how far they made it in the playoffs. So one point for a playoff win, uh, two for a conference loss, three for a conference win, four for a Super Bowl, five for a Super Bowl win. So for instance, a team that wins the Super Bowl in any given year can win a total of nine points. And this will help us determine the champion of and runner-up of the decade, as well as any other notable teams. All right, Mike, so let's uh, get to This Just In.
1: All right, let's start the categories. This Just In, um, so we'll start with 1983. So this was an interesting thing that they found out, that these teams were able to pull about 15 to 20,000 fans per game. Um so the New Jersey Generals, uh, Tampa Bay Bandits, and Denver Gold, um, we're seeing closer to forty thousand on average.
0: Well, I saw I actually saw something that said that first season, um, that through seventeen games, they, however many fans they had drawn, equaled out to like twenty four, almost twenty five thousand fans per game.
1: Yeah, total uh, across the league, right, absolutely. across the league, yeah. so
0: that that's pretty impressive
1: they were filling nfl stadiums by by the 80s most nfl teams had their own stadiums and they were filling these stadiums to you know 40 to you know 60% capacity i mean that's pretty impressive yeah without a doubt so 1984 saw a massive expansion, um, netting six new teams. We'll talk about those a little later. Yeah. And, Which uh,
0: just it seems crazy after one season to go you know, right. jump up that high. Exactly.
1: And then one major transaction, uh, the New Jersey generals were sold to um, a real estate tycoon, who you might know, Donald Trump. This happened on September 21st, 1983, um, just right before the 1984 season. Yeah, also in 1984, players decided to vote to start a union. So the USFL PA is born.
0: Yes, yes, uh, which is, you know, it's always great for, for workers to have a union. So um, then that, that same year, also, the owners, this is kind of what the the crux of this whole episode is about. The owners voted uh, to move the 1986 season to the fall and winter, directly competing with the NFL.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there was a lot of back and forth to decide whether they wanted to stay in the spring or move to the fall and directly compete with uh, the NFL. And there was a couple of parties that had motivations for either way. And we'll get into a little bit of that later. Um, But ultimately, like you said, it was kind of what led to the the downfall of the league in a lot of ways.
0: Right, right. And so... You know, we were seeing already with the beginning of this league, like in 1983, you know, Herschel Walker was signed, uh, Heisman Trophy winner coming out of of college um, a year before he would have been allowed to uh, with the current NFL rules at the time because you had to play four years. Um, that, That 1984 NFL draft because of a lot of these players coming out, was just terrible had no I mean not terrible had pro bowlers and whatnot but I mean like Irving Fryer was the number one pick in the in that draft because there was no Herschel Walker there was no um Steve Young Jim Kelly Reggie White all these guys um were not uh, available so that the 84 draft I guess goes down from what I saw on a very informative YouTube video goes down there's actually a band named The terrible 1984 draft that they had play in this video. It was pretty funny, but um, yeah. So they, uh, it it just was a, it was a kind of a nightmare uh, scenario for the teams um, in the NFL, which uh, it was just not, you know, not having any players left. The the, the superstars of the draft had gone, had gone on to uh, play in the USFL at the time.
1: Yeah. So basically, what happened in 1983? Herschel Walker wins the Heisman Trophy. But he's a junior. You have to you have to play, as you said, four years before you can enter into the NFL draft. So the NFL rules prohibited him from entering the draft in 1983. He didn't want to go back to college. Um, well,
0: word on the street was that he wasn't going to be eligible to play in 1984 well, there for you Georgia. Go. So he had to. Apparently, something had to happen. I saw something. I saw a video talking about how he actually, his agent contacted, uh, the USFL was like, who can we, can you guys get him on a team, please? We'll, we'll do whatever we have to do. And then he signed a three year, $4 million contract to play.
1: Exactly. Yeah. The, so uh, thank goodness for the USFL for her, If you're Herschel Walker, you were able to kind of circumvent the NFL rule, but that in part is why. So Herschel Walker would have gone in the 1984 draft, right? Also who would have gone in the 1984 draft is Steve Young and Reggie White. So none of those players actually made it into that NFL draft because they were all drafted um, by the USFL. Never played? Did they didn't play in the um, in the NFL?
0: So you know, yeah, the players were just, yeah, you know, they there was nobody to draft that year, and they, yeah, I mean, I think that definitely, I think we're
1: going to run up rough. against that this year, the 2022 draft. Not a lot of. You know, top line players. players. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, speaking of Herschel Walker, um, in 1985, he runs for 2,411 yards. Now, that's a pro football record for a single season. Now, the USFL did play 18 games, two more than the NFL did at the time. Um, But if you kind of take his yards per game, multiply that over 16, he still has 2143, which is still a record. Um, He beats Eric Dickerson's 2103.
0: Right. Yep, that was, uh, I mean, and, you know, I don't know. I feel like Eric Dickerson was probably rushing against a little better competition, but. Uh, oh, you yeah, never absolutely.
1: Know. So this is the crux of why we thought the USFL was so important is the lawsuit. So, um, post the 85 season, um, with the 1986 season looming and the uh, fall winter schedule planned, two camps started to form. One led by john bassett the owner of the tampa bay bandits he wanted it to stay a spring league he wanted to build the brand um, in, enhance the product and then transition into fall winter with a potential merger with the nfl later on
0: right and when, he had been involved in some previous uh, iterations of spring attempted spring leagues uh, including the world league he was he had a part in that um and in the if you watch the small potatoes documentary, there's a you know quote from him in there, and he's just like, I, he's like if if we fail, he's like I'm gonna look like the biggest moron of all of us because I've done, I've done this before, I've been I've done you know I've I've had this experience, and if I screw it up again, I'm gonna be the one who's looking the worst. So well,
1: it got so contentious that uh, John wanted to take the the his group of owners and basically start. Or keep c- keep, going, keep 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 the with the USFL or you know start another league in that in that spring he was really dedicated to that model. However, on the other hand, we had Donald Trump, owner of the uh, New Jersey Generals. He had convinced many of his fellow owners to um, obviously move the season to the fall and winter. So he kind of won that vote. Um, he. Convince him to sue the NFL for antitrust viola- uh, violation, and then his main goal was to prompt a massive judgment in there on their behalf, and then essentially force the NFL to merge with the USf- USFL. Right. So that and was the end. He assured
0: all the owners, though, just trust me, I know. Like we're gonna, we'll, we'll get NFL teams out of this, and we'll be able to. And if not, you're either gonna get a ton of money or you're going to get an NFL team.
1: So the, yes, exactly. So the core of the lawsuit was based on a few of the following principles. Um, NFL was bullying broadcasting companies. Um, they kind of did it like they, you know, what they did with the AFL, you know, not allowing CBS to cover them, things like that. Um, they were accused of denying access to the premium sports venues. Um, I'm not sure that that held water either because they did play in a lot of stadiums that the NFL teams played in. Um, they were uh, developing plans to compete for players by collectively outbidding the USFL. Um, that's collusion, essentially, and um, they did do a little bit of that. There was this thing, this plan that they had, a series of memos outlining the strategies for eliminating the quote USFL problem. So when that word got out, that's when, you know, everyone's like, all right, we got, we have, we have a case on our hands. Let's go to court.
0: Yeah. So, you know, the trial began in the spring of 86 and lasted for 48 days on July 29th, 1986, which just so happens to be the same day that John Bassett passed away from cancer after fighting so hard for the league. Um, Yeah, the six-person jury ruled in favor of the USFL, which, you know, sounds like a great thing, declaring that the NFL had willfully acquired and maintained monopoly status in professional football through predatory tactics. However, it rejected the other USFL claims, uh, noting that they willingly changed its strategy to force a merger with the NFL. And ruling that the NFL did not interfere with the USFL's broadcasting options, noting that ESPN was still carrying the league's games, uh, in addition to the fact that several teams had local broadcasting agreements as well. So
1: I think those two things are pretty key. I mean if you didn't want you weren't competing with the nfl at the time with your spring summer schedule right the second you decide to do that you go to war with this other group yeah, so you had a strategy after them exactly so. you you had a strategy that was contrary to that other you know league strategy and you're kind of putting yourself uh, deliberately in a space where you aren't gonna be able to compete yeah, so you
0: spill hot coffee on your lap you're
1: probably not winning a lawsuit Or maybe you are. (laughs) (laughs) Well, nowadays, I suppose. So here's the settlement. The NFL was required to pay the USFL's attorney fees and court costs. This totaled right around $5 million. Um, The NFL appealed this verdict to the Supreme Court who ruled against them in 1990. The NFL paid the USFL, now completely defunct, and awarded them... $1 $1 in damages. So because it was a antitrust violation, you uh, multiply the damages times three. So instead of $1, uh, they ended up with uh, $3 and then they added another 76 cents in in interest um, for a grand total of $3.76 awarded to the USFL. Uh, <laughs> check has never been cashed as you... Probably can expect.
0: Yeah, and it's pretty funny to see. Like, uh, they showed it on the Small Potatoes documentary, which was pretty funny. They pulled it out of a safe deposit. Yeah. it was pretty cool. He showed it to Trump, and he was, and he's just like, eh, whatever. Here, take potatoes. it back. All
1: right, so Donald Trump, we gotta wanted to kind of pull this whole thing out and just like what his strategy was right. for essentially bringing down this the decision that he made that he convinced other people to do, which is move to the fall schedule, is really kind of what caused this league to kind of falter. So um, in, 80, in 1983, the going rate for a franchise in the NFL was about $80 million. So instead of buying into that, he decided to buy into the upstart USFL instead. He purchased the New Jersey Generals for $6 million. So almost immediately, he goes into the spending spree, signing Herschel Walker to an extension and Doug Flutie to a seven million dollar five five-year contract. He, uh, he also went after like Lawrence Taylor and uh, Coach Don Shula of the Miami Dolphins. I mean, he was throwing money at everybody. So at the end of the day, Trump lost an estimated $22 million in his investment in the New Jersey Generals. Um And kind of, I looked at this, uh, the sticker price for what, you know, if he gave that $80 million, um, at the time, because I think the Dallas Cowboys were up for sale, there was an ownership group that was trying to sell the Dallas Cowboys at the time. So there was an opportunity for him to buy in at that point. Right. So if he buys that Dallas Cowboy at $80 million, you know, circa 1983, um, it was, six years later bought by jerry jones for 140 million dollars so in that six year period it essentially doubles in value Hmm. um and then it's currently worth almost five billion dollars now right so just think about it um if he just goes you know what this is the this is the better play i'm supposedly a good businessman and i can i can see value and um you know, in hindsight, we know what he was trying to do is trying to like buy in at 6 million and have a, a franchise
0: in the NFL and it didn't work out for him. So, yeah, no, that's, uh, interesting how, how it all played out, man. So, well, let's, uh, let's move on to our teams, Mike. Um, so 12 teams started that 1983 season. They were broken up into three divisions, the Atlantic, the central and the Pacific division, right? Uh, Atlantic, Division had the Philadelphia Stars, the Boston Breakers, the New Jersey Generals, the Washington Federals. Uh, Central Division was made up of the Michigan Panthers, Chicago Blitz, Tampa Bay Bandits, and Birmingham Stallions. The Pacific Division had the Oakland Invaders, Los Angeles Express, the Denver Gold, and the Arizona Wranglers.
1: All right, so don't get familiar with these teams. Don't even... Uh, remember their names because over the next two years, we add six more and then like teams merge into other teams and they they completely move to different cities and become different teams. So in 1984, we net six teams, uh, making a total of 18. So the league adds the Pittsburgh Marauders, the Memphis Showboats, the Jacksonville Bulls, Houston Gamblers, San Antonio Gunslingers, Oklahoma Outlaws. The Boston Breakers move to New Orleans and become the New Orleans Breakers. So they realign, creating two conferences, Eastern and Western, and now four divisions. So in the Eastern Conference, we have the Atlantic Division, the Philadelphia Stars, Pittsburgh Maulers, New Jersey Generals, Washington Federals. In the Southern Division, the Birmingham Stallions, Tampa Bay Bandits, New Orleans Breakers, Memphis Showboats, and Jacksonville Bulls. In the Western Conference, Pacific Division, we have the Oakland Invaders, LA Express, Denver Gold, Arizona Wranglers. And the Central Division, we have the Houston Gamblers, Michigan Panthers, San Antonio Gunslingers, Oklahoma Outlaws, and the Chicago
0: Blitz. So for the 1985 season... I guess still don't pay too close attention to the names in the <laughs> the cities. Uh, we had uh, the four teams removed from the equation and get down to 14 teams total. Uh, the Pittsburgh Maulers fold. After one season. After yep. one season. Chicago Blitz suspend operations. Not technically folding, still kind of yeah. hanging in there, but not playing a season. Yeah. Uh, so the Michigan Panthers merge with the Oakland Invaders because they're really close. Um, Arizona Wranglers and Oklahoma Outlaws merge and change the name to the Arizona Outlaws. A little bit of that. That's a funny, it's like a little Benifer thing. Yeah. Um, The the New Orleans Breakers relocate to Portland, Oregon and become the Portland Breakers. Uh, Philadelphia Stars move to College Park, Maryland, change the name to the Baltimore Stars. The Washington Federals are sold and relocated to Orlando, Florida and become the Orlando Renegades. League realigns to two conferences with no divisions. So back to our old So yeah, two-conference. And now we're uh, dealing with the, in the Eastern Conference, we have the Birmingham Stallions, New Jersey Generals, Memphis Showboats, Baltimore Stars, Tampa Bay Bandits, Jacksonville Bulls, and Orlando Renegades. And the Western Conference has the Oakland Invaders, Denver Gold, Houston Gamblers, Arizona Outlaws portland breakers san antonio gunslingers and the los angeles express mouthful of those teams
1: all right our next category changing the game now they mostly adopted nfl rules so there there are a couple of variations a couple
0: very important ones so.
1: so um teams would have two options after scoring a touchdown they could kick an extra point from a tee Field goals were the same, actually. Or they could attempt a two-point conversion. Now, this is very similar to what we see now. Teams have an option. They don't get to kick it from a tee, obviously, but they can kick an extra point or they can go for the two-point conversion. Um, they also added that the clock stops on first downs in the last two minutes of the half in the game. So to reward, continually get that first down in those last couple of minutes, it allows you, you know, the team to move down the field and potentially um, – score that touchdown to get them get get them the win the USFL ball I guess was three eighths of an inch shorter than the NFL ball now I I wonder like circumference wise if that if that changes the the diameter of the ball does that make it easier to throw I mean I wonder I I wonder. maybe more along the lines of what the college size
0: is perhaps yeah I wonder what that what that was all about that's that's interesting we'll have to stack guy on that see if you can figure some, figure out what it was. There you go.
1: And uh, they had an 18 game season which we mentioned earlier that was unique to professional football at the time. And then of course instant replay, we kind of talked about this at the in the stack guy portion. Um, most of the USFL review process and policy was adapted by the NFL um, for the 1999 iteration, including the red
0: flag. That was a big part of what uh, the USFL did. That was very funny seeing that on way back then and be like, I can't believe the NFL didn't adopt that sooner. I mean, well, it seems like a great idea.
1: They tried different things, right? They tried like a pager system and a bunch of other things, and it was... You know, it relied on the referee of noticing these things that Mm -hmm. were happening amongst all of the other things that they got to pay attention to. So they just went back to like the low tech thing of throwing garbage out on the field to get somebody's attention. Right? right. So that's pretty interesting. So that was kind of the the end of the change of the game. Like we said, not a big category for this one. So let's move on. Um, we switch up the fantasy draft, as you mentioned at the, yeah. at the top of the episode, uh, we're just going to call out some of the USFL notable players for this one. So, uh, Jeremy, give me some quarterbacks.
0: Yeah. So, um, I knew this guy already. So, Bobby Bobby Hebert, um, the Creole sensation. I don't know what his actual name is, but he's definitely – he's got that Creole draw. I love it. Uh, he played for the Michigan Panthers and the Oakland Invaders once they combined the two teams. He had a 55% completion percentage in his three years in the USFL and had 11,137 passing yards, 81 touchdowns, and 58 interceptions. Uh, in 1985, Bobby played in the USFL during the spring and summer, and then played for the NFL for their regular season in the in the fall.
1: Yeah, he was back and forth. Yeah, that's it's crazy. pretty crazy. Yeah, year round football for these guys. right? Yeah,
0: that's that's wild. Because that's that's the thing they had they had decided to move, so they played that '85 spring slash summer season, and then they weren't going to play again until the next fall. So they were going to go a whole like 14 months out before they played again or whatever, 12 months, 13 months out, something like that would yeah, have been yeah. before they started, uh, before they came back for that next season. So.
1: Yeah. So, uh, also Jim Kelly from, uh, 84 to 85, you may know him from the university of Miami. He eventually went, uh, played for the uh, Buffalo bills. Uh, but he, uh, initially went to the Houston gamblers. Um, he was 63%, uh, completion percentage. He threw for, um, 9,800 yards, 83 touchdowns, uh, 45 interceptions. So in those two years, he was, you know, throwing about you know, almost 5,000 yards a year. Um, he was, again, I was. he was drafted by Buffalo Bills in the 83 draft. He didn't want to play in a cold weather town. So he basically used the Houston Gamblers and the USFL to kind of like, play football, but not have to out play of football. He the University of Miami, and, so yeah. didn't want to. <laughs> he didn't want to play in Buffalo.
0: Nobody ever said University of Miami players were soft. <laughs> um, so the next guy we had was uh, Steve Young. He you played there in 80... 80- huh?
1: You may know of him.
0: Yeah. You <laughs> <laughs> might have heard of him before. So Steve Young, he played uh, for the Los Angeles... Uh, he played for the Los Angeles Express from 84 to 85. In those two seasons, he compiled a 56.3% completion percentage, had 4,100 yards passing, 16 touchdowns, but 22 interceptions. Uh, like Bobby A. Bear, played for the Express in the spring summer league, and then the NFL for the Bucks. That same fall, he signed a 10-year, $40 million contract with the Express, paid out in an annuity. Which was one million dollars for forty a year for forty years, which is just crazy. And there's a great line uh, in in the Small Potatoes documentary where he's he's just having a terrible game. He threw an interception and. Uh, all the crowds like he said the crowds yelling like 40 million like what a waste of money or something he said his mom was like up, so upset she was like she would stand <laughs> up and yell back don't you know it's in an annuity it's not he didn't get 40 million dollars it's all in an annuity so i wonder I, how much i wonder if he actually got paid all of that money or if it after they went out of business that it was just over
1: well i don't even know if i want to get Stat yeah. guy in this but yeah. i think my my whole thing i would i would venture to say that once the league folded
0: that contract was void. Yeah. So who knows? He didn't he didn't get that Bobby Bonilla that Bobby Bonilla contract. <laughs> now that's the one, right? Yeah.
1: So nineteen eighty five, uh Doug Flutie, um, New Jersey general signed him a forty seven percent completion percentage. I don't know, Threw for uh, 2,100 yards in his one year with the Generals, 13 touchdowns, and 14 interceptions. So this is the thing with Doug Flutie. like He's just kind of an average guy, um, but a great athlete. He's very short, uh, but tough. Um, he played for so many teams he played for nine different professional football teams and three different professional football leagues including the usfl the nfl the cfl he played for the buffalo bills he did well there he played for the san diego chargers he had a nice little run in there um but generally speaking man that guy was he played everywhere
0: yeah absolutely uh and then the the next quarterback we had on, on the list uh for the San Antonio gunslingers for the 1984 and 85 season is slick. Rick Neuheisel, uh, the ruler, uh, Rick had 55.8% completion percentage, uh, 5,600 yards passing 14 touchdowns, 15 interceptions. Uh, and this is kind of our UW Homer pick made a name for himself coaching the university of Colorado uh, took his talents to, to, uh, for recruiting to the Washington Huskies and, uh, you know, was unceremoniously fired after after a, a gambling uh, March Madness debacle. But that's neither here nor there. Um, so, yeah, and there is a great clip in the documentary also of him singing the San Antonio gunslingers fight song. Yeah. And um, if I can pull that somehow out, I'm going to put that right here
1: he was really good at recruiting Southern California. That's what kind of brought him into the, into popularity at the university of Colorado. Um, took, he took a lot of those talents to to Washington. And I think it was just like one of those, um, pools, those, uh, march madness Madness
0: pool like it wasn't well at
1: that point it 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 tells me a it's the uh ncaa and and the hypocrisy of that and then two somebody really wanted him out
0: oh yeah for sure yeah it was definitely uh some bigger bigger fish they were trying to fry there i think
1: So most of the notable players for um, the USFL have a tendency to be offensive here. I mean, a lot of the stuff that we do, you know, fantasy drafts and such, even in the NFL is a lot, it's very offensive driven. So um, there's a couple of big names and running backs. We've discussed Herschel Walker, you know, from 1983 to 85, he was with the New Jersey Generals. He ran, his all purpose yards were about 7,046 yards and 61 touchdowns. Um, He was able, like when he came into the draft, they... The USFL basically said you can go anywhere you want to go. Um, it, it wasn't even like you're the first pick; your rights are here. They said you're the kind of player we need to get, and we need to so bring what, you in. Yeah,
0: what, what city do you want to live in, basically?
1: Right. So he goes to the New Jersey market. It's right, or the New Jersey New York market,
0: um, and that
1: basically he turns that into endorsement deals with uh, McDonald's and Adidas, like right away. So that was his plan: get get into into professional football, get some endorsement deals kind of like before his time in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, so then another great running back from the USFL. This is this guy's like literally one of my favorite. What ifs? What ifs ever. Uh, it's Marcus Dupree. He played for the uh, New Orleans slash Portland Breakers for the 84 and 85 seasons. Um, had 924 yards rushing and 10 touchdowns. Uh, He's one of the most recruited running backs in the 1980s. Uh, He was from Philadelphia, Mississippi, ended up going to the University of Oklahoma. After a promising freshman year, Marcus showed up late for his sophomore season, overweight, and began to lose favor with his head coach, Barry Switzer, who we all know from Dallas Cowboys fame as well. Um, This would eventually lead to a massively underwhelming college and pro career. He was the subject of the 30 for 30 film the best that never was and I suggest if anybody hasn't seen that yet you go, go out and watch it it's one of the best
1: yeah I rewatched it and I mean you look at his how good he was on that film and the way people talked about him and then you look at his numbers in college and and, and the pros and it just well they don't the match was, up
0: yeah and he weighed like 350 pounds at one point and like got himself back into insane shape and, and went back to the nfl after i think yeah i'm not sure if he he if that was between college and the usfl or if that was between the usfl and the nfl but yeah he just like basically almost ate himself to death and then turned himself back into like a super freak athlete that, yeah one of the most impressive things i've ever seen so
1: so another running back uh that that made a splash in the in the pros was mike rozier he won the heisman cool. trophy um, he played for the Pittsburgh Maulers and later the Jacksonville Bulls. He ran for uh, twenty-seven hundred yards, eighteen touchdowns in those two years. Um, his professional career never really took off, but um, like I said, he was a Heisman Trophy winner for the Cornhuskers.
0: Yeah, no, that's uh, that's good. Uh, and then the another another uh, running back that just played the eighty-four and eighty-five seasons was Craig James for the Washington Federals. Uh, he had. 1385 yards and six touchdowns uh he was out of uh smu i remember from the uh pony express
1: documentary excess
0: Excess, yeah you're right uh so like many players craig played for the usfl during the spring and summer season uh and then the nfl in the fall and winter he was also part of the famed pony excess backfield with uh, eric dickerson I'm sorry, Pony Express. The 30 for 30 is called Pony Excess. <laughs> Another one you should definitely go and watch. Yeah.
1: So there are a few other notable players. Uh, we'll just kind of rattle them off here. Um, so offense, we have um, Gary Zimmerman, uh, offensive uh, lineman. Nate Newton, uh, the, he eventually played for the Cowboys, offensive lineman. Anthony Carter, uh, wide receiver for the Minnesota Vikings. Uh, special team, Scott Norwood. We always we know of the kick in the Super Bowl with the the Bills, the wide right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tony Zendejas and Sean Landetta. Uh, and then defense. Um, some big names here, actually. Yeah. So Reggie White, Hall of Famer.
0: Uh, Gary Plummer and Sam Mills. Yeah, all recognizable names for sure. So also... The USFL drafted and or signed three straight Heisman Trophy winners. 82 was Herschel Walker from the University of Georgia. 83 was Mike Rozier, University of Nebraska. And 84 was Doug Flutie from Boston College.
1: I mean, that's pretty impressive to, to basically draft and take three straight Heisman Trophy winners. Right. You know.
0: Yeah. And then the USFL, um, there was a, the, the NFL held the USFL slash CFL supplemental draft on June 5th, 1984. And the top four picks in that draft were Steve Young to, fame. to Tampa Bay, Mike Rozier to Houston, Gary Zimmerman to the New York Giants, and Reggie White to the Philadelphia Eagles.
1: Yeah, so three out of the four top picks in that supplemental draft uh, ended up in the Hall of Fame. Pretty impressive. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So our final category before we get to who won the decade is our winners and losers. So I'll kick off this category with my first winner. It's the Sunbelt States um, with local enthusiasm from sports franchises and increased population. Now, I went down a deep dive on this. There was a, a big influx of population to that area, primarily because of the efficiency and now usage of Um, air conditioning, it became part of Central Air um, in the South, particularly, you know, in the late 70s leading into the 80s. And it really made it so that people could live there comfortably. So, wow, what, you know, you have a technological advancement that leads to population boom, which leads to, you know, sports franchises coming out of the woodwork. Yeah. So one of the things that we noticed that, so if you look at the areas in the Sun Belt or the teams in the Sun Belt that have expanded since 1980, essentially before, just right at the time that this league started, there was a massive expansion um, of Sun Belt teams. So in the NBA, we had the Dallas Mavericks, the Miami Heat, the Charlotte Hornets, New Orleans Pelicans. Orlando Magic, Memphis Grizzlies, and the Oklahoma City Thunder.
0: I, I, yeah, go ahead.
1: <laughs> RAP Sonics. Uh, for Major League Baseball, we had the Miami Marlins, Arizona Diamondbacks, Tampa Bay Rays, NFL, of course, the Carolina Panthers, the Jacksonville Jaguars, Houston Texans, and Tennessee Titans. In the NHL, we have the Tampa Bay Lightning, the Florida Panthers, Nashville Predators and the Vegas Golden Knights. I don't know a lot about MLS, but we still have two Miami teams, a Houston Dynamo team, Orlando, LA, um, Nashville, Austin, and Charlotte. So, so many teams jumped into this area. It wasn't what the USFL was able to do was show not only the NFL, but all these other sports leagues out there that the fan base could actually show up for games and a lot of these leagues expanded into this area mm-hmm. so it's very important to the um, sports landscape that we see now
0: yeah absolutely absolutely that's uh that's a really good one uh my my first winner was you know it's going back to the well again that america like we were winning for getting more football like for fans that don't want to go sit in Lambeau Field in you know 10 degree weather with snow and want to go watch a football game in you know in in a nice time of the year that it's not you know dumping rain or, or snow on you, uh, I think it, it was a, it was good for the sport because I mean if it's a, say you're not a baseball fan but you want to you you watch football kind of a little bit but you get to go to a game you get into it more maybe now you're watching the NFL and and it just kind of you know. It was good for the sport, good for America.
1: I like to watch football. I like to wear shorts. Yeah. USFL would have been perfect for me.
0: Yeah, I know, man. I'm with you.
1: So there's a couple of other outside of, uh, cities and areas outside of um, the Sun Belt area. Um, so, for example, Baltimore, the success of the Stars um, in the final season of the USFL was, a ca- was the major case for bringing back football to Baltimore. Not too long after that, the Cleveland Browns relocate to Baltimore and become the Ravens. Now, depending on how you want to look at that, whether uh, I guess the official thing is that the Baltimore Ravens is an expansion team that started in 1996 and that the gap between 96 and 99 was just a gap for the franchise history of the Browns. So if you look at it that way, there was an expansion team, Baltimore Ravens, that started in part because of the success of the USFL in Baltimore. And then, like Baltimore, Arizona is the same. Um, They were able to get the St. Louis Cardinals to come to Phoenix and, you know, play professional football there.
0: Absolutely. So my other winner, Mike, is John Bassett. And, you know, I I don't know if it's like the memory of John Bassett, but just his his willingness and his, his want to have that spring league succeed. And it did. I mean, it it, like, it was, it was viable. It would have worked if they, you know, if Donald Trump doesn't come in and, and screw everything up. So I just feel like he deserves another kind of shout out for, for his work and, and trying to keep the league together in the spring and, and uh, you know, having been through the, the previous iterations of spring football and, and having failed and then, I feel like they, even though they eventually failed and he eventually died, I think that his, his kind of spirit goes on with this and, and, you know, help. I just, I, I just think that, that that was a, he needs to be recognized again for sure. So
1: sure. Sometimes you do everything that you're supposed to, you follow the plan, you have a good idea of how to succeed and, you know, things outside of your control, uh, cancer, Donald Trump, other owners um, get in the way of what you feel is best. And right. ultimately it didn't work out. So, yeah, he was a winner in a lot of ways. He, he was one of the, the he had the Tampa Bay Bandits. So one of the franchises that were successful, had, uh, they had stayed successful. Fans, yep. like,
0: yeah, they, people loved it there.
1: So, so, yeah, that's that's a good one. Um, in line with that, I have David Dixon. Um, you know, just in general, man, he, he gets the, the Superdome built. He gets, uh, the new Orleans saints to, um, to that city. And he had this vision for this spring summer league and it was well thought out. He provided the template for success. You know, at the end of the day, if they had only listened to him, this, we would be having a different conversation.
0: I agree. I agree. I think, yeah, I think, uh, David Dixon and and John Bassett, if they would have been in charge, like this thing might have, uh, you know, if they would have had been able to control Trump, I think they would have made this thing work. So,
1: all right, any more winners? No, that's today? it for
0: me. Go ahead with. Uh, all right, we'll let's, let you get into your losers, and let, I'll yeah. follow it up.
1: Let's move on to our losers for the USFL. So, um, I would say Trump and the other owners massively misjudged the amount of damages they were going to be awarded. It was a it was a huge failure. The idea was to have the 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 award go be so big that the NFL was going to be forced to bring in these teams. And it backfired. It didn't work. And uh, unfortunately, that league went down with these owners decisions. And I don't know if it had to go that way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, My first loser was the city of Portland. Uh, finally got another team other another professional sports team other than the trailblazers at least of the three you know dominant sports of our or four dominant sports of our time um they you know they probably thought they had something like hell yeah we're gonna you know maybe we can you know uh roll this into an nfl team maybe we can worst case scenario we have a great spring league that we can have uh every year and you know got it after one season, got it pulled out from from underneath them. So,
1: yeah, it's unfortunate, man. I mean, I've been to a couple of games down in Portland. I've been to a couple of Blazers games and a couple of Timbers games. And you know, Portland fans they do show up. They, yeah. And uh, you know, it would have been nice if they had an opportunity to, to to have that. And man, Portland in the summer, watching that game in that stadium. I think the stadium's still there, the one that they played in. So, I think that's where the Timbers play. But yeah. yeah, would have been a lot of fun.
0: Absolutely.
1: So Buffalo Bills is another one of my losers. Um, you know, just Jim Kelly basically abandoning them to go play for the Gamblers um, in itself is enough. Um, they found it really difficult to, because of the winners and because of the um, kind of idea that it was so cold and hard to play in, that a lot of players didn't want to go there um, and ended up. Um, kind of leaving and, and going to, these, to this league. Uh, now, on the flip side, however, once the USFL kind of was defunct, they were able to go out and get a lot of these players that played in that league that other teams kind of ignored. So they ended up with uh, Bill Pullion as the GM. They ended up with Marv Levy as their coach. They are had already drafted Jim Kelly. They got they bring in Scott Norwood and a bunch of other these uh, free agents uh, from the USFL. So perhaps ultimately it helped them build that championship team that or that team that would compete for championships in the in the '90s. But you know ultimately, you know it was really tough to get some of those players there.
0: Yeah, I could imagine. Uh, that's a good one for sure. Uh, so my next loser is. I guess America or all of us football fans, again, um, let, me say, let me set the scene for you, Mike. Please do. It's February 24th, 1985. Okay.
1: Taking myself back there.
0: They call this the greatest game no one ever saw. Houston Gamblers versus Los Angeles Express in Los Angeles. The Express have a 33-13 to 13 lead with 9 minutes and 47 seconds left in the fourth quarter. Steve young Jim Kelly battling it out all day back you know like coming back and forth at each other, Jim Kelly of the gamblers already has three hundred fifty four yards passing when he goes on an absolute tear in this, this the second half of this fourth quarter uh grip it and rip it right he grip and rip it uh yeah they they were running they were they had the run and shoot offense there in Houston, so l a has a couple of turnovers in this fourth quarter. Kelly ends up throwing for another 220 yards and three touchdowns to win the game 34 to 33. Only 18,000 fans were in attendance and the game had been bumped off of TV because ABC wanted to cover Doug Flutie's professional football debut with the generals the same week. So, I yeah, I just feel like that would have been I mean that's like what they probably needed. Like think about that like in the first game of 85 you you know you see something like that like you know, your head's like exploding. You're like, "Yes, let's go watch this. Let's you know, you're going to be tuned in more and and you're going to want to watch more of this." It'd of be unfathomable game. to
1: bump Steve Young and Jim Kelly for Doug Flutie <laughs> at this point.
0: Yeah, it's crazy, man. So,
1: All right, so my final loser is uh, the city of Miami and Howard uh, Schnellenberger. Schnellenberger was the head coach of the Miami Hurricanes from 1979 uh, to 1983. He basically took a um, uh, college football program out of obscurity and made them kind of a national championship. Uh, he won that national championship in 1983. Soon after that, he leaves the Hurricanes um, because there's this prospect of becoming the coach, GM, and owner of a fell franchise.
0: He was going to Jimmy, uh, Jerry Jones us. He was going to Jerry Jones us. Yeah, exactly.
1: So this was supposed to come to Miami. Um, the Washington Federals were going to relocate. However... The switch of the league to the fall of the winner, the USFL didn't want to compete with the Dolphins, so they basically directed the franchise to uh, the, to Orlando instead and became the renegades
0: so he quit and then didn't become the owner and
1: yeah the so Red he Trail. become yeah exactly so he wins a national championship and then quits because he wants to go to this new league and become the owner of this league or and this, of Jimmy this team.
0: Johnson came in as the new coach probably. Right. Yeah. yeah
1: Jimmy Johnson was right after him Oof. and then he does all that. And then they decide not to even put it in Miami because they had made some other decisions coming down the line. Now, I don't know if that's Howard's fault. Like, did he know that was happening or right. but I would think if he's a potential owner of this, you know, situation like. He, he would have to know, I would think that they were moving because they had voted that in uh, what, 84. Right. So yeah. I don't know. Just a big um, bad job by him, I suppose.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: All right. Any, any more uh, losers
0: for you? No, I'm all done. How about you?
1: All right. No, I'm good. So that ends our categories for today. So Boom. now it's time Let's to see to who won, not the decade, but who won the USFL.
0: Right. Because so, it was only three seasons. Only
1: three. Very long seasons. All right. <laughs> so uh, the winner, we have the Philadelphia slash Baltimore Stars. Uh, they had a, a dynasty score of 26. They went 41, 12 and one throughout the three years. They made the playoffs all three years, conference champions three times, and USFL champion uh, two times, back to back in eighty-four
0: and eighty-five. All right, um, our runner-up, and, and you know that uh, just a note on the Philadelphia slash Baltimore Stars, like Jim Morrow was their head coach uh playoffs. Playoff. He uh, you know, he just made it yeah, you know, they had they didn't go out for all like the high priced flashy players, kinda like Tampa, the same way Tampa was built by John Bassett and his co owner Burt Reynolds built uh, the Tampa Bay team. Uh, you know, you didn't they didn't go after these flashy, you know, they didn't they couldn't afford to pay, you know, a bunch of high priced guys, so they just tried to build the best football team possible. So um Anyway though, uh, our runner up of the 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 USFL was the Michigan Panthers. They had a dynasty score of 10, uh, 22 and 14 record, made the playoffs twice, conference champion once and USFL uh, USFL champion once. Yeah, so they were in the first. Yeah, they were in the
1: Indiana first Darryl. champion, yeah. First champion in the league. They went to all three. Um, yeah. I think those are really, like, you talk about the two best teams. It's got to right. be those and two, it's, right? And the
0: funny thing is neither of them had any of, like, the big, huge stars of the, you know, that had come from college football.
1: And the Michigan Panthers didn't even play a season in 1985. They had merged <laughs> with the Oakland Invaders. Right. Crazy stuff. Yeah. So our only real honorable mention uh, for this episode is the New Jersey Generals. Um, <laughs> they had a dynasty score of two, uh, essentially made the playoffs twice. Uh, in that three years, they went uh, 31 and 23. So pretty average, uh, made the playoffs twice. As I mentioned, never made a conference championship game, never made a USFL championship game, but they had the most notable owner, Donald Trump, and spent more money than any other team to sign players, taking big swings at established NFL players and coaches. So
0: there you have it. The USFL, I think that puts a bow on it.
1: Yes, it does. This was a fun episode. Um, It was really interesting to learn about this league that I knew very little about before I kind of started down this journey. So that was pretty exciting. And man, the historical significance of this league and what it meant for, uh, Sunbelt cities and, you know, sports franchises is, was pretty amazing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, well, we will be back next week with, uh, 1990s NFL football, and yeah, look forward to doing that one. I'm, I'm excited.
1: Yeah, it's small potatoes. <sighs>